This edition of How To Be A CEO is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharmadine Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June 2024. Good luck. Hi there, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and across the Six Nations as Europe's elite go head-to-head in rugby's oldest international competition. Each week, we'll be looking at the QBE predictor, which forecasts the results of each round of matches. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe now and download wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. ES Audio. If anyone knows how to be a CEO, it's William Reeve. He's pretty much spent his entire working career as the boss. Even at school, his classmates recognised the self-confessed nerd obsessed with computers was probably onto something special. In my school yearbook, I think I was nominated the kid most likely to be a millionaire by the age of 30. So maybe even if it hadn't been occurring to me, it had occurred to somebody. Were you a millionaire at 30? And there was quite a bit of inflation from when I was at school to when I was 30. <laughs> but yes, I was. I was. You certainly would have a decent bank balance if you sold your first company, in this case a consultancy called Fletcher Research, created in 1997, for somewhere around £20 million pounds. In 1999. Which, as it turns out, was about some nine months before the dot-com boom crashed, which sort of, to some extent, makes me look like a genius, or me and my partner look like a genius, but actually that that isn't the case at all, and we hadn't anticipated the dot-com crash. And if you follow that by setting up something like Love Film and selling it to Amazon for a reported £200 million, you're going to be doing all right. And lots of people are going to want to know how you did it. William's given his expertise to companies like Secret Escapes, Paddy Power, Zoopla and Nutmeg. And now he's CEO of Good Lord, a company trying to disrupt the property rental market. I'm David Marsden from the Evening Standard. And when I meet William over Zoom in his office, I want to know, having worked with so many companies, does he still get a buzz out of it? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I love business. I'm a sort of, business is a hobby for me. But I think what it is, is it's about problem solving. But in a competitive sense in that, Certainly in in most economies in the world, you're in a competitive environment of some form or other. And to grow, it's not not a zero-sum game so much, but you are are trying to essentially grow against other smart characters with other teams, with other objectives. And uh, there's an intellectual challenge to that that I enjoy. Tell me about Good Lord, what this company is and, and why you got involved. Because it wasn't when you started in the best of shapes, was it? No, that's right. I didn't. I wasn't one of the founders of Good Lord. But Good Lord was founded to make renting better, and it was founded by three three young guys who kind of were using the likes of Airbnb and Uber and Amazon, and and they were renting together. In fact, one of them actually worked for a letting agent, uh, so in the industry, and they were just like, "Why can't this experience of ours be better? Uh, and why can't we be using technology the way that 
you know, but you can use it to book holidays and travel and order things and so on. Uh, and why can't we do that? And that that mission hasn't changed. That's what the business is trying to do. It's, it's using technology to make what is, for most people, one of the most stressful experiences of their lives just a little bit less stressful, hopefully. Um, and so what we're doing is creating some software that operates behind the scenes and helps keep track of what's going on, sort of deal with all the admin and faff and paperwork and you know an average letting agent has over 40 steps in the in the process from sort of finding a tenant to eventually handing the keys over and we're just trying to make all that process less less annoying less stressful and uh, more compliant actually with the the laws because uh, it's quite a politically sensitive sector yeah so the the idea is clearly very sound and if you consider the rental market in, in somewhere like london alone there's obviously opportunity in there but why did you go I'm going to come into this company and here's what I'm going to do. What what pulled you in? So I was invited to meet the company by one of its investors who is an investor I'd worked with before. And what was interesting to me was it wasn't a brand new startup. I think I'm, I've been a bit old for brand new startups for a while, really. There was an existing business, an existing product, uh, and actually some customers actually would you add them of it paying for the product, uh, which is quite encouraging. They had several hundred companies paying for the software so that that shows something and these companies are not just companies they're actually letting agents and i knew i was involved with zoopla a few years early and i know just you know letting agents are no pushover for um getting to pay for things so i thought there's, there's obviously something here um but there also was there was a lack of experience in the team that was one of the reasons i got asked and they wanted somebody i suppose you know what some people in the tech sector would call adult supervision or gray hairs or some other slightly pejorative phrase like that i'm the I'm, and i was i was the i was being sought after i suppose because there were there were some very talented people in the business but they hadn't um got the experience of, of building something profitable and building something that, that financially um could really scale so they wanted some they wanted some, some gray hairs around the table that could help them do that and that's that's what was interesting to me and and ultimately actually one thing led to another and i ended up taking over as ceo of the business and just talking about renting in this kind of post-pandemic era, at least what we're talking about is post-pandemic. I mean, let's hope it is post-pandemic. Did that change the rental market? Did that make it easier for you? Did it make it harder for you? How were differing behaviours uh, affecting Good Lord? Well, uh, so the, the, the pandemic and the lockdown uh, phenomenon, that of course, that we saw all, all over the Western world, had a couple of effects for us. In the short term, it was extremely disruptive. We had the government in the UK saying to people, don't move house. And from Good Lord's point of view, and from the renting point sector's point of view, it's it's kind of all about moving house. So thankfully, they didn't ban moving house, so things never actually completely dried up. But it was it was very disruptive. And and what happened in practice is that you know, if you need to move, you need to move, and and you can put that off a few weeks for you know social distancing, masks, etc. But in practice, we saw pent up demand come back uh, as. Uh, as the market started to open up again. On the other hand, there was a real positive for Goodord as a, as a technology business because Goodord's trying to bring that process and sector into the 21st century and, and, and get people using technology instead of paper and whatever. And one of our key challenges is usually answering an agent's question, which is, why now? And the uh, lockdown answered that for us because suddenly the agents weren't allowed to be in their branches using paper, doing face-to-face meetings. They absolutely they were allowed to operate, but provided it was social distance brackets at home, and um, and our and our toolkit really helped them do that. So we saw a, a, an acceleration of people um, starting to use processes like ours and our software. 
So when you come in as a CEO of a, of a business rather than a startup, do you go, right, we have to do a big root and branch review here or do, or do you kind of change things around the edges and move towards something? What was the, the focus for? What was day one for you? Here's what we're going to do right now. Day one for me, I think, was saying hello to a bunch of people. Uh, and, um, and one of the points I made as I did that was I don't have any answers. The answers are all in the room already. And, you know, you, you, guys, you guys know what we need to do. We just need to, we need to agree that together and make sure everybody knows what the objectives are and we'll work together to, to do this. But you're not going to get any magic out of me. <laughs> um, and that, that is what happened. And in fact, we had one product in particular that was really causing a lot of pain and problems. And, uh, and I found a guy in the business quite quickly who literally had a little spreadsheet and he, he'd listed all the sort of 17 things I think that needed to happen to that product and what each of those 17 things was going to be worth. And uh, once I found that list, I was like, let's do this, shall we? And that was, that was exactly what happened, actually. Yeah, I get you. Know, I'd imagine that just that listening, just going around speaking to people must be incredibly important. Yeah, and I, I, think, um, I think the great leaders I've learned from have always been people who've listened and consulted and collaborated. They're not people who've kind of brought down tablets of stone from the mountaintop and said, here are the Ten Commandments. I think I've tried to learn from that and, and, and use that myself. And especially when you're coming into a business with a bunch of um, talented people who have managed to, against all the prevailing odds, sort of get a bunch of technology built, which never had happened before, a bunch of letting agents to start paying for it. Uh, and they've been starting to actually see, see terrific growth in the business. I'm not going to want to change that. One thing I did change, probably not quite day one, David, probably day two, was that because the business was losing money at that point, uh, and, it, and because it had one product in particular that was really, really causing trouble and was it was it was costing far too much money to deliver. Some of the some of the investors in the business had said, "Please don't grow, don't don't bring on any more customers because every new customer you bring on is just just digging the trench deeper." Was the mindset, and. Um, I don't believe in businesses that are not growing. So I, I did, I changed one thing. It was probably on about day two. I said, new customers are always good. We're bringing on customers. So it's a kind of a new philosophy, really, isn't it? Is there a lot of philosophizing in, in entrepreneurship? Do you find yourself thinking, thinking, sort of trying to think of wise thoughts? No. <laughs> I try and learn from other wise people. But the reality is that most of the sort of accomplished literature in the world doesn't really focus on entrepreneurship. You've talked about how busy you've become doing this job. It's clearly a full-time job, but you do have other roles. You're, you're, you're a, I think it's a non-executive director at Dunelm, for example. Why use your time? Because you can't have much spare time, I would expect. So why use your time on something like that? Well, I, I actually, it's quite common for serving executives to be on other companies' board as non-executive. And I think the reason why that is common and, and a good thing and, and why I wanted to do that is because it's a learning process. And most of, pretty much all of the businesses I've generally been involved with have been um, private companies, but they mostly aspire to be public companies at, at some point, or certainly to grow and to, be, to become better companies. And the highest standards of governance and practice in general are public companies so from my point of view having a chance to be on the board of a public company is a learning process that hopefully will teach me things i can take to the younger and smaller and generally less well-governed private companies and help them to um, improve that has been tremendously helpful to me i wanted to go right back to the very beginning when you sold your first company was that always the intention when you 
created a startup to sell that off later on? No, I don't think, David, selling the business was ever actually part of the plan, actually. Certainly in my first company, and although I got accused of it quite a lot in my second company, Love Fail, where a lot of people sort of assumed we just wanted to get bought by Netflix. Um, I don't think you really can build a business to sell. And um, I think in my, our first business, we were, we, were, we were trying to just build the business. And I suppose these days, I'd say we're trying to build the best business you can. And good businesses are generally uh, bought, not sold. When do you realize then that it's a good time to exit? Is it when, when the offer comes in or do you go out looking for it? Do you realize that, that this is now, it's time to sell this and move on? There are plenty of professional investors who are far smarter at that sort of stuff than I am. And I don't think I've ever sat there and consciously thought, hmm, when would be the best time to sell? And hmm, this set of offers you've made me here is pretty interesting, but I don't think it's quite the right time to sell. So I think we might just wait like eight months if that's right. It just, it just doesn't really work that way around. Um, as it happens, my first business, we ended up selling in 1999, which as it turns out was about, sort of nine months before the dot-com boom crashed, which sort of, to some extent, makes me look like a genius or me and my partner look like a genius, but actually that that isn't the case at all. And we hadn't anticipated the dot-com crash and were sort of scratching our heads really over the bubble, wasn't even completely convinced it was a bubble. So there wasn't any foresight or thinking about it. I think what happened in that case was one of the big, big sort of 800-pound gorillas in our space, an American company, approached us we had we had been approached on occasion by people mostly though with a view to can i invest in the business i like what you're doing but we got approached by one of the 800 pound gorillas forest research one and they were they were effectively a competitor of ours uh, although they didn't have a uk product set and we just got into quite a friendly conversation really and they said so what do you want to do and we went sort of grow and learn how to and do sales better and and our problem back then was we didn't have a uh, method of distributing our product online, which was a bit annoying because we were supposedly online experts. But we asked them, what do you want to achieve? And they said, well, we want to develop our UK expertise and grow. And by the way, we've got a really good online delivery system. So it's sort of just, just sort of as we sat there and talked to each other, it's like, actually, we could help each other, couldn't we? And then they said, well, how do you fancy joining the group? And we went, well, actually, that sounds quite appealing. And then, and they made us an offer which which seemed reasonable. I mean, I don't think we had particularly had a clue, actually, but it, it was a sort of life-changing amount of money, which was a good start. And no, we didn't ask ourselves, is this the right time? You know, and we didn't try and run a very competitive process or um, you know, any of the other various things, which I suppose one, one might contemplate. But that life-changing sum of money kind of allowed you to do all kinds of things now, didn't it? It uh, well, so ha- having had my life change, I then of course didn't know what I wanted to change it to. So uh, I, I, I became unemployed <laughs> for a little bit, but you were able to use that money and reinvest it in other in other companies, weren't you? I, yeah, I was, and I didn't think of it necessarily as reinvesting. In fact, a lot of my early angel activity, as it's known, was not. I didn't intend to ever to get that money back. I. I I viewed it as analogous to writing a check and throwing it away. And I was well, throwing it away to someone who's going to cash it, I suppose is what I mean there. Um, and um, I thought of myself as supporting people I knew and wanted to back and, and, and help. And I always made sure it was an amount of money I was prepared to just lose and write off. So it was only some years later that actually I started to 
see some money coming back or realize that actually some of these investments had. Right, I'm off to stream a movie and reminisce about those days of the love film DVD parcel popping through my letterbox and then forgetting to return it. Thankfully, there were no late fees. So while I do that, let's pop some ads in. And maybe while they're on, you could drop us a little rate, review and follow on your podcast provider. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Do you ever look back on the companies that you've been with and kind of feel nostalgic about them? I mean, Love Film's one of the ones that you ran. I used Love Film. It was a great little service. It was fantastic. Watched and watched loads of DVDs through Love Film. Do you ever think back and go, that was a really good time? Or, or is everything just about, that was manic and, and I'm glad I'm out of there? No, I, I absolutely look back and uh, with, with real fondness at a lot of these things. And, but it tends to be looking back at particular people. Um, and relationships that I've maintained. And the um, one of the things I'm really pleased with that Love Film, for example, is that there was a, really quite a few people who were there when I left in 2008 who are still still there, still at Amazon now. And they, you know the, the the name on the door might have changed, but the opportunities and the the kind of impacts that uh, we've been able to create for those people hasn't changed. Was it ever an option for you to not go back to work? Was that something you would ever consider? Um, my natural inclination there was always to start with a spreadsheet and I needed, I needed a spreadsheet to understand, do I, could I not work? And, and the reality is that I know I was very young. I was in my twenties and I touch wood had a lot of life left ahead of me. And it's very hard to look sort of 30, 40, 50 years out with any confidence, especially when you're mindful of hyperinflation and in, in the seventies and so on, you know, in relatively recent living memory. So the reality, I think, I think these days one, I would say yes. I, I I probably was in a position where I didn't have to work. I, I didn't. I never thought too seriously about that. I've sort of. I'm a natural worker, really. I, I it, it gave me a sense of freedom and independence that meant I didn't need to work and wasn't wasn't choosing where I worked on the basis of financial considerations. 
No, but when you were, I mean, you said when you made your investments, it was kind of helping people out that you maybe knew or that in companies you thought were quite interesting or at least fun to work with, I'd, I'd imagine. I, what were you looking for then? And, and has that changed when you're thinking about investing in a company? Much as I, I certainly used to view it as a sort of almost charitable endeavor, there was some level of bar that, had to be passed, I suppose. And I had to I had to consider that actually this person I wanted to support was a talented person and that the plan they were engaging in seemed like it had made sense. And and I've tended there to always want some sense of what is the plan to win. And I didn't always see that. And in in one notable investment, I really just knew this the guy I was backing was a winner rather than did I that I thought his actual plan had a had a winning streak in it um and i think these days i i'm too i'm actually too busy it, I'm, a lot of my angel activity has been when i've been unemployed and i'm not unemployed at the moment so i've i'm actually genuinely too busy to really um do much angel investing and that stuff i do do tends to be to support existing companies that were have a have an investment already but um i don't think my underlying view on what is the plan that will win? And is this person backable? I don't think that's changed really over 20 years, no. So it's not the accounting bottom line necessarily that you're looking at. It's, it's, the, it's the person behind the company. That's right. But having said that, I've always regarded myself as one of the more old-fashioned types in the internet world in that I do, I do care about the numbers and, and I want some concept of profit somewhere. Um, I think the difference between me and what I consider profit and what a lot of the old world considers to be profit is I, I, is I don't need the bottom line on the financial statement to be profitable. There's a really easy growth business. There's a tip for your listeners straight away, Dave, you want to build a growth business. Here's how. Sell tenors for nine quid. You will, you will be, they will be flying off out of your pockets and um, you will find your, you know, uh, as as reputation spreads, queues will form, and you will be struggling to satisfy demand, uh, and you'll have one of the fastest growing businesses ever, and uh, beat that Elon Musk. Um, but the reality is that selling tenors for nine quid is not clever, and I, I always want to make sure that tenors are being sold for more than ten quid. Oh, presumably, unless you can get them for eight quid yourself, and then you can then you can sell them for nine. <laughs> if you can get a tenner for eight quid, it's you, it's probably off the back of a lorry, and I, I'd examine <laughs> it quite carefully. I think I've always wanted uh, <laughs> wanted a sense that the plan was to sell tenors for more than ten quid, and that the guy or gals I'm backing understood the difference between selling a tenner for nine quid and selling it for say fifteen quid, because that often isn't the case, especially with some sort of um, hand wave the internet types. Where are the big problems just now, either for your own sector or in general across industry at the moment? What are the problems that are, that are hardest to be being solved right now? Well, uh, look, and I'm not going to be telling you anything that you or your listeners don't know, David, but I mean, inflation is obviously one of the big uh, topics to show. And the energy crisis in particular, actually, is something which at good order is causing us quite a lot of disruption because one of the ingredients in moving home is setting up your utilities and energy supplies. And we normally play quite an active role in that, but that, that market is is currently being um, poleaxed by the um, market disruption. And market disruption combined with the price cap, that's actually a bit like the point I made earlier. Um, there are energy suppliers now saying, I don't want any new customers, which is a pretty unnatural thing, but it's it's uh, 
yeah and i say having 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 on day two when i joined good lord made sure that nobody ever said that in our business i i, I can now understand why the energy companies are saying that but that, that, that that's that's a very unsustainable situation yeah i can imagine that something like the cost of living crisis that we're living through must be impacting heavily on the rental sector Yes, I mean it's a little bit early to see what the actual impact is on on rents and the, and the rental sector, but you know all all history lessons would suggest that one of the things that that is impacted by inflation are property prices and rent. So almost certainly one one is going to see rents going up. Um, that's not a, that's not an accurate forecast, but the direction of travel here is clearly for um, rents to go up. And I suppose the question is just sort of how how long-term is this inflationary impact? It's, it's relatively easy to see the, uh, first of all, it was the impact of the sort of shipping disruption from goods coming in from the Far East, and now it's the energy crisis. But then what are the knock-on effects on that, and how long does this last? And do, does inflation become ingrained in the process and system as it was in previous periods in history? Or is this a relatively short, sharp shock that you know, we'll look back on 2022 as the year of inflation, but otherwise it'll it'll be quickly become a, a, a faded memory. That's the, that's the challenge for us all at the moment younger people are they being hit by this cost of living crisis right now yes well so it's a little bit early to know what's happening to rent but i mean what, what's certainly true is that generation rent as it's called is the one where uh, the cost of living is probably most acute right and the affordability crisis whatever whatever you want to call it, it hits hits these people on um who are early in their careers uh, not earning as much as the sort of older generations and have got modern rents to pay, not the old sort of laughable ones from 30 years ago. I get frustrated by quite a bit of sort of coverage I see in the media, actually, David, if you don't mind me saying, because I think that your average policymaker, stroke journalist, tends to think of tax rates as being sort of 20% for normal people and 40% for high rate taxpayers. And the moment you look at a payslip, you'll see that's not true, um, because there's this funny thing on it called national insurance. Um, and again, what you, I think your average policymaker tends to forget is that national insurance drops a lot once you're a higher rate taxpayer. Uh, and there's also this funny thing called student loan deductions, which is 9%. So for your average person in generation rent, even if they're well, they're not earning what a higher rate taxpayer needs to earn, they're still paying the same taxes as a higher rate taxpayer because they're paying income tax plus national insurance plus a student loan deduction. So they've got taxes well over 40%. Whereas actually, the likes of me, who you know, I'm a, I'm an above average earner, and I'm I've been you know financially pretty fortunate in my life. Um, I think my I don't have a student loan deduction, and um, my national insurance percentage is lower than most of my staff at Good Lord. So there's something um, there's something people tend to forget, which is generation rent is is not only earning less, but they're really high highly taxed, and the, and the cost of living is a very um, real thing for them. It you know it does seem. Like the, the the rental sector is quite archaic in how those systems. It's in the Bible. <laughs> the systems have been run. Is that because people don't want to change? Has there been resistance to change, or is it because like nobody said to them, "You can do it like this"? It's a mixture of reasons, um, and there is something pretty fundamental about roofs overheads. And for a lot of landlords, they're offering a property for rent as an investment strategy. And part of the point of the exercise is, is to be as passive as possible, really, and just sort of in an ideal world, the property doesn't need much work and the rent just get, gets paid every month or every quarter and they don't have to think about it. So anybody, sort of bright young thing like me coming along, or bright old thing like me, whatever I am, uh, or stupid old, anyway, whatever it is, uh, <laughs> anybody coming along and, and asking them to change something involves 
something which is goes against the grain of kind of hang on a moment I, I was hoping I, I don't like changing things because it, it sort of it's not really what I was about but I think at the at the end of the day there are plenty of people who do want to change things there are lots of very progressive um, letting agents for example who, who absolutely understand the possibilities and want to create a better experience and see that as a competitive edge they can get on their rivals and that's really what drags the more reluctant people forward what's next for you what's the next? 10 years where, where where what are you planning or do you do you even have a 10-year plan do you have a five-year plan i i generally operate in some sort of somewhat five-year chunks i must admit i don't i do not have a 10-year plan but even my five-year crystal ball is a little bit murky at the moment with uh what with there's a war on for heaven's sakes etc uh, etc et so no i think we've made very good progress uh, good lord in the last uh, few years i really want to continue that progress um, as I said earlier, I don't believe in building businesses for exit. I believe in building great businesses and good Lord still has a long way to go. So I want, I want, to, want to make sure that we, we build it into something which probably when I am uh, old and, and in my dotage, I can look back on and hopefully know that some of the people in good Lord are still there in 20 years time. That's, that's success for me. That was William Reeves, CEO of Good Lord. How to be a CEO is back next week. New episodes drop first thing every Monday morning. Why not start your week with us? Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.